the events of what we've looked at in Matthew 22, uh, and we'll go up uh, to the end of the chapter today, but certainly from verse 1 to 33, have been going on on a long day. It's been one of those days where Jesus has uh, been tested and tried by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and this, these two groups of people have been acting almost like a tag team. If one of them can't bring Jesus down with one of their questions, well, the other one will have a go. And we could get a picture that these two groups worked like this all the time. Because both groups had in their mind to get rid of Jesus from the religious scene. But these two groups of people didn't get on whatsoever. They got on on a certain level because they had to, because they were the religious ruling classes. But they had deep divisions that went along social lines, that went along historical lines, and went along religious lines. The Sadducees, they were aristocrats. They tended to be wealthy and held powerful positions, including that of the chief priests and the high priest. And they held the majority of seats on the 70-seat council that we know as the Sanhedrin. And they worked hard to keep the peace. They were in line with Rome. They didn't sit completely happy with what Rome were doing, but they let it go. For the sake of a little bit of peace and quiet, they let Rome do what Rome had to do. And so they let Rome pass them by. Anything that would come, they signed it off, they stamped it, and they accepted it. At times, this religious elite, seem to be more concerned with wealth, self-importance, and the rule of Rome than they did in the things of God. And because of their status in the upper wealthier classes, the common man were very separate from them. So they had no dealings whatsoever with those people who were beneath them. And likewise, those from the lower classes did not hold the Sadducees, in high regard. And though this group of people held the most seats on the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, it turns out they actually weren't very powerful at all. And it was because of this divide between them and the common people. As we look at the Pharisees in a minute, we'll see that they held a minority of seats, but yet they had the most power. They had the greater voice because they were favored by the common people. So the Sanhedrin, or the uh, Sadducees of the Sanhedrin trying to keep the status quo, not upset things, were willing to go with whatever the Pharisees said so that the common people would stay in line and would stay uh, to the line and stay where they were supposed to stay. The Sadducees were concerned only with the written word to be the word from God, and they preserved the authority of that written word, especially the books of Moses. They also denied the resurrection of the dead and any form of afterlife, holding that the soul in death received whatever it received, and that was it. There was no penalty or reward for a life following God. Death was death, and that's all. And with that, they also denied the existence of a spiritual realm, therefore no angels and no demons. The Sadducees part of this ruling elite. Well, in contrast to them, the Pharisees were mostly middle-class businessmen, 
and therefore were in contact day and daily with the common people around them. They were held in much higher esteem because of what we've said a moment ago. The common people knew them, could relate to them. And though they were this minority in the ruling council, they had so much sway, they got their way in everything that they wanted. Religiously, they accepted the written word of God, inspired by God, but they also gave equal authority to tradition. And they attempted to defend any of their positions by both the word of God and tradition. And as the years went on, forming this chain of keeping God's law as they knew it in the law of Moses, they would add to it. And so this tradition became the law itself. And the clear lines between what was law and what was tradition became very fuzzy. And so that's why whenever we read accounts in the New Testament about the Pharisees and these made-up laws, this is where it all comes from. The fact that they held tradition on an equal par with the Word of God. They agreed that there would be a resurrection of the dead in line with Scripture and an afterlife that would be appropriate reward and punishment on an individual basis. And they also believed in the existence of angels and demons. So although it seems that these two groups are working closely together to bring Jesus down, a tag team as it were, these two groups were as far removed as you could ever imagine. They bore each other patiently because that is what the law of the land said had to happen. They had one common purpose. One purpose and one purpose only. To bring down Jesus Christ because he was that religious radical, that troublemaker. And the Sadducees had tried. They had tried earlier in this day in chapter 22 of trying to pull Jesus down by tricking him and trapping him in how he would answer their questions. And the Pharisees hearing this, I'm sure with a little bit of glee in their face, said, okay, it's up to us now. We're going to be the ones that are going to bring Jesus down. They're kind of forgetting that they've tried in the past and they haven't succeeded. But here they go again. But this time, there's something different about how they go about this. They bring before them an expert in the law. So that's both the inspired word of God and tradition. They bring this guy before Jesus to ask a legal question. With our New Testament eyes, this question seems quite easy to answer. But in fact, for the people of the time, it was a minefield. It was a question that was to get to the very heart of Jesus. It was to get to his orthodoxy. Was he truly a Jew or was he some hyped up little backwater man who thought he knew a way but in fact wasn't the true way? And the question comes in verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? This had been an issue for hot debate because, of course, in the Sanhedrin, as they would be thinking of the greatest commandment, the Sadducees would be saying the love of God and that only. But the Pharisees, with their traditions and everything else that would come along, everything that the people knew because they, the Pharisees were the friends of the common man, they had added to it and in fact, they had summarized the law in 11 principles that could be found in Psalm 15, in six principles that could be found in Isaiah 33:15 to 16, in three principles in Micah, 
And that's just some of the passages that they held as authority as to what would be the greatest commandment. I don't know if you see what's missing. Sam and Isaiah, Micah, and if you were to look at the others, there's one section of the Bible that is missing. They don't go anywhere near the law of Moses. They don't touch what they hold as the foundation of what they want Israel to be, God's chosen people. And what's even more interesting is that it is where Jesus goes straight to to get the answer. In verse 37, Jesus replies, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And Jesus doesn't stop there. Not only is he giving them the simple answer that they can't argue with, but he goes on to say, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This answer that Jesus presents is made up from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5 and Leviticus 19 verse 18. And it's almost a slap in the face to the Pharisees because they would be pious Jews and most likely they should know Deuteronomy 6 inside out, especially verse 5. Because Deuteronomy 6 and especially verse 5 make up what we know as the Shema. This was the passage of Scripture that was said twice daily by every pious Jew. If you were a Jew and you wanted that close relationship with God, you said this verse and this passage twice a day. Jesus was using something they were supposed to know so well as an answer that they couldn't trick him or trap him on because they could not come back and question his answer. His orthodoxy would be proved to be right and true. Not only does Jesus answer their question, but in his answer, he turns the whole thing around. And instead of a, the question becoming a question of orthodoxy about Jesus, it becomes a question of orthodoxy about the Pharisees. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It was very easy to love God. This was their job. This is what they had to do. There was no question about that. But the question came in the second. Love your neighbor. None of the religious ruling classes were good at relations. There was always this divide of what were known as the clean and the unclean. In many of the accounts, we see that the Pharisees and the Sadducees don't go anywhere near where Jesus is for fear of contamination of sin. They didn't have to touch. Just simply in the presence of who they assumed were sinners, they would be infected by this sin. Relationships weren't something that they did. So to love your neighbor as yourself raises the question of orthodoxy about how they understand what it means to love God. Isn't it wonderful that the answer Jesus gives centers around love? 
It's what it's all about. Love first for God and then love for others. And it's clear that the first call of humankind is to love God. And not just every now and then, but with every aspect of our lives in every situation. And as we love God and know the grace of love from him, so our lives are to mirror, mirror his. As believers, born-again believers in Jesus Christ, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, and we become Christ in this world. We are not commanded to get on with or just to like people. We are commanded to love people as we know love of God. And the Greek word in this passage is agapesis, coming from agapeo or agape, that love that we translate, one of the three loves, as sacrificial love. But it goes much deeper than just what our normal understanding of sacrificial love is. It's not the nice fluffy love, just to clarify, that we see all around us in society today, but it's a love that puts up with difficulties now and in the future. It is a love that continues. And I tell you this, because I hated Greek. I had to learn it for two years, and I hated it. But what it does, it tells me that on the end of this Greek word is something that continues here and long into the future. And so this meaning of love isn't just here and now and whatever may come up along the way, but every moment in between from now until eternity is a love that continues to love without question, without anything that we count as looking back to us. It is a sacrificial love. It is a love that continues from now until eternity. And this poses a question for us. How is our love for God? Are we in relationship with him and therefore we know him? And then on to the second question that Jesus asks. How are our relationships with others around us? Are we loving our neighbors as we love ourselves? Jesus said that the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, everything that God has promised and planned from the foundation of the world are based on our love for God and for others. So how do we figure this out as we leave here this morning and go into a normal week. Who are the people that we come into contact with come nine o'clock tomorrow morning? Those we work with, those who we come into contact with through our work, our neighbors, our wider families, our close family, members of our worshiping community, those we meet for the first time this week and may never see again. The list for you may be slightly different, but I think we get the idea of the sphere of contact that we have from the moment we leave here until we gather again next week. So who are the faces and or the names that come into our heads as we think about all these groups of people 
who we'll come into contact with? Are they people we naturally get on with? Are the people that we despise and think, can I not just have another day off before I have to go in and see them? Is it a case of getting a phone call to say that someone's coming around to visit and you think, I don't know why they're coming to visit because I really don't want to see them, then they know that? Who are the people who we'll come into contact with this week where we will have an opportunity to show the love of God, to love these people as we know the love of God. I would love to be able to give you a catch-all answer about how you can do this, but I can't. Only you know the hurt and the issues that hinder a strong relationship. Only you know the situations that need to be addressed. Only you know the people you find difficult to love. But the one thing I know is that we must try and we must love those around us. How difficult is it for God to love us? Whenever you think of who we are as fallen people, how difficult is it for God to love us? Well, when we consider our sinful state and how much was sacrificed to save us, God pulls out all the stops to call us to a relationship of love with him. And likewise, for his sake, we must do all we can to show the love to others as we love him. One of the things in ministry training that you get to do, we call it cutting your teeth, is to go around many vacant congregations around the countryside. And I had the privilege of doing quite a many from quite a number of years, even before I was entered into training for the ministry. And the same story comes time and time again. People in churches, professing Christians who don't get on, They don't get on with people in the church because of arguments and disagreements over the color of curtains and the patterns on teacups. People who don't get on, one sits here and one sits there because families fought over an inch of land. The church has been torn apart, both within and from outside in our family relations because we are not showing love to each other. And it may be that this congregation, in my experience of it, is one of those congregations that doesn't find itself in those shoes. But the potential of things happening like that are great. As we start to think of our own little ideas of how we do things rather than God's, of how we start losing love for people because we stop caring. We stop asking, how are you? And we stop showing the practical love that people need all around us. The world, the world would have us know and think that love is easy. Within the Christian church, it's not just as easy as we would like it to be. It takes effort on our part It takes a relationship with Jesus Christ so that we can know love. From our call of worship today, God is love in him. That's his characteristic. So as we know him, we know love and therefore can show love to those around us. We move into the second part of the passage. And this is the 
turning point in the interaction. In fact, it's the marker. It's the marker that stops all the questioning of Jesus, and his authority is confirmed and assured from that point on. The religious leaders have gathered. They've asked all their questions. Whether they're gathering to think of another question, we don't know. But Jesus gets in. And Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And in this question, Jesus summarizes both his claims and their discomfiture. He knows that in this, in whatever answer they give, they will have to affirm him as Christ, and it will bring question to everything that they believe. And so they don't get a chance whenever they come and say, David's son, as would be the typical answer, the line of David, we we know that from the start of Matthew's gospel, but all of the prophets pointed to that. They come with that answer, and they don't get a chance to bring an answer again as Jesus asks a rhetorical question and says, if this is what you think, if the Christ is to be the son of David, why does David call the Messiah or the Christ Lord? Why does David, the great king of Israel, say, and Jesus quotes Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The Messiah cannot be a true son of David if David is referring to him as Lord. In the mindset of what these people thought, they thought that the Messiah was going to be a descendant of David's line to arise, gather the people in revolt, throw off the Roman yoke, and restore independence and theocracy. In other words, a Palestine that was pre-exile and before the kingdom was divided. The glory days, the height of David and Solomon. That's what they were harking back to. And they saw their Messiah riding in on that grand horse, clearing the Roman authorities out of the way with the host of Israel behind him. And they were looking what was a human level. And Jesus is teaching in this. He's teaching the futility and a messianic hope that doesn't rise beyond that human level. The ruling class, the ruling religious class, only viewed the Messiah in terms of a unified Israel. That's what they were thinking. They didn't see anything beyond their own comfort and their own human desires. And Jesus throws the barn door wide open. And he says, you need to think bigger than this. Because the Messiah is not going to be this man on a horse to get rid of Israel. But the Messiah is going to usher in a new kingdom that is a spiritual kingdom. He is going to be the one to usher in a spiritual revolution through his death and his resurrection. Jesus, as the Messiah, was offering true freedom. But it was an eternal freedom rather than freedom that was a worldly one. And the question that Jesus posed to these Pharisees is the same one that has to be answered by us today. So I ask you the same question as I ask myself. What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Two questions 
two answers. And it's quite easy for us to slip into our Sunday school mode and come up with the answers. Because those answers would be true and right. But let's think about them for a moment. The first question, we'll leave and jump straight to the second because it's slightly easier. Whose son is he? We know the answer. He's God's son. We know the salvation story of this only begotten son sent to this world to die on a cross so that our sins would be forgiven and God would be able to accept us as pure and right people. So whose son is he? We can all confidently say that he is God's son. But back to the first. The first question is harder because we must ask ourselves in our hearts of hearts who we view the Christ as. Not what we have been taught, but in our mind how we are convinced of who the Christ is. To answer this question, we must ask another question. Where on the spectrum of life does Christ sit with us? Where does he fit in to what we know as our lives? Is he the one who pops in and out when we need him, mainly during difficult times? Is he the one who we present when we are with Christian friends only? Do we pick him up and drop him off on Sundays? Or is he the spectrum? Is he the one that everything else in our lives centers around? What do we think about Jesus? Is he our all in all? Jesus is the savior of the world. We can't deny this because the Bible tells us that. He is the one who came to save this perishing world. He was the one who was with God before the world was created. And a relatively new chorus puts it like this. You are my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. I'm seeking you as a precious jewel. Lord, to give up I'd be a fool. You are my all in all. Jesus, Lamb of God, worthy is your name. Taking my cross, my sin, my shame, rising again, I bless your name. You are my all in all. When I am down, you pick me up. When I am dry, you fill my cup. You are my all in all. Jesus, Lamb of God, worthy is your name. Our view of Jesus Christ. What do we think of him? Over the past number of weeks, I've met different groups of 20-something-year-olds. And we've been talking about these things. And it's been amazing to me that in the four groups that I've seen since the start of July, the same thing has come up time and time and time again. The context is that these 20-somethings are on teams serving in mission this summer. And on teams we have what we know as this spiritual high. What comes together as true fellowship, the true church coming together, no major arguments and any differences in theology and thought are put aside for the one purpose of seeing God's name glorified. And they know that when they go home it's not like that. And they question why. And as they've been thinking through this process, the answer comes. 
they don't have an accurate view of who Jesus is. And let's face it, can we blame people for not having an accurate view of the God-man? The only one who is both God and man. The only one who could pay the price for our sins. But how can we get this view that Jesus can be and should be our all in all? An accurate view of Jesus will lead us straight to God. Understanding that He is God's Son, that He was the one sent to fulfill the salvation plan of God so that I and you can live tomorrow in freedom, knowing that no matter what the evil one throws at us, we can have confidence to stand and move forward because Christ from God has delivered us and bought us so that we are no longer under that power of sin, facing the penalty of what will be. An accurate view of Jesus Christ. The greatest commandments and what we think about Jesus center around one theme. And that one theme is love. Jesus Christ is love and has shown great love. We, we can't deny it. No one could ever love us so much as Jesus Christ, who saw us as he went to that cross and bore our sins. I leave you with this one question. Do you have a real view of Jesus where you see him as the Son of God sent by God to offer a way of salvation, and as the Son of God, he is now seated at the Father's right hand in splendid glory, interceding on our behalf? an accurate view of Jesus Christ, knowing the greatest of commandments, knowing that it is about a relationship of love, is an accurate view that will take us straight to God, who is our Father, who will care for us, nurture us, and love us as he continues to grow in us and we become his likeness. Let's pray. Lord, everything in the past 20 minutes or so we offer to you. We offer these words that we can only have confidence in because they are your words. As we have read the scriptures, as we have tried to make sense of what they mean, Lord, we offer them to you. And we offer ourselves to you as we think through them as we think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to learn from him and to be like him in this world. Father, we need an accurate view of Jesus. We need a view that will stand during the difficult times. We need a view of Jesus that will Help us to celebrate more through the times of blessing. And as we have that accurate view, Father, you will give us the love, the love that we need to patiently bear 
and to patiently love those around us. So help us to make sense of what you're saying to us. May our heads now remove from the words of man and move to your words and have confidence in them alone. We pray all this in Jesus' name, who we desire to be our all in all. Amen.